Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, welcome back. It is, uh, it's my turn this week to be able to kind of go through and to give us a, an overview of the, the sections. We are doing sections 129 through 132. And, uh, man, these sections are, <laughs> these sections are, are fun. We're going to do, we're going to do the polygamy, uh, the polygamy section. That's the one I've been kind of looking forward to for really bizarre purposes all, all year long. <laughs> You've been looking forward to it. I've been not looking forward to it. Well, yeah, I've been, I've been looking forward to it in a, in a, in a bizarre kind of way, but the, these are really interesting sections and we're getting down to a time where you know, we explained a little bit of the historical context last last week because it was all about baptism for the dead. And so there's this new engagement that the saints had to the gospel, and it really created some excitement. But also through going through that, as we brought up, polygamy is already being practiced. And it's being practiced in secret and behind closed doors. And there's there's not a lot of things that are on the up and up. And so, you know, we're going to talk about a little bit of that. We're going to bring in um, a book today from Benjamin Park. He's a historian, um, a Mormon historian. He's he's absolutely amazing. I love his book. It's called The Kingdom of Nauvoo. It was published, I think it was published in 2019, just before COVID hit. It's just an absolutely fantastic book. And so we're going to read a little bit of the history that he's been able to to compile there and in kind of framing 132, because I think in a lot of ways, when we first started off with a podcast this year, there were a lot of people who approached me having problems with polygamy, with the doctrine of polygamy. This is a really strong emotional conversation that members of the church that we just don't have. And in fact, in the Come Follow Me manual, it actually downplays even talking about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had some people send that to me this week. I'm like, are you going to talk about it? I'm like, heck yeah, we're going to talk about it. <laughs> so, so it's one of those things that it's, we're not even going to begin to scratch a half a percent of the surface. This conversation goes so deep. Um, there are people, you know, like uh, Year of Polygamy. With, you know, Lindsay Hanson Park has uh, Year of Polygamy. It's a fantastic podcast on polygamy. Um, it's on Joseph Smith's polygamy. I'd highly suggest everybody go there, go check it out. Again, that's Year of Polygamy. Brian and Laura Hales. We interviewed Brian and Laura Hales years ago for LDS yeah, when Liberty. Yeah, we did LDS Liberty. Yeah. Right. And we, yeah, we talked a little bit about Joseph Smith's polygamy back then. And Brian and Laura Hales have a great, a great program uh, set up. It's uh, Joseph Smith's polygamy. Is it .org or .com? I haven't pulled it up in a while. .org. Is it .org? Okay. So that's a fantastic resource as well. He's put a lot of his, he went through years ago and, and got in with uh, Don Bradley. And Don Bradley was the one doing a lot of the heavy lifting and the research. And Brian was helping to compile everything that they were getting together and, and put it on in Martin, kind of put it on the website. And so they have a lot of great content on Joseph Smith's polygamy, original source documents. And he just wanted to kind of know what, 
Yeah, that's basically, it's just all primary source stuff. That's the whole thing. It's just primary right. source documents. Yeah, wanting to get the primary source to it. And, and it does offer a little bit of a, an apologetic bent. So it, it does it does lean pro LDS because, you know, there's there's some projects that are really right down the middle. There's some that lean against, and Brian, you know, Brian in that project leans a little bit to, into the into the church that way. But it's a great resource. And so those are definitely things to listen to, especially uh, on Joseph Smith's polygamy. I, I loved it because at the time that I first got a hold of it, I was commuting um, once a week up to Sacramento and back to my home in Bakersfield, which is a well, it depends on how fast you drive, but it's anywhere between a three and a half to four and a half hour drive. <laughs> and I just put his podcast because each one of those articles has is uh, is like a podcast. You can just press play and it'll just read you the whole article that's there. So absolutely informative, uh, goes through... Uh, Year of Polygamy with Lindsay Hanson Park goes through every single one of Joseph Smith's um, polygamous wives. Um, same thing with Brian Hales, and and, and there's other books out there that uh, if anybody's interested, you can you can message us, and I'll I'll give you some links and some suggestions for some additional reading. But what we're going to talk about is we're just going to briefly contextualize 132, and in contextualizing 132. Um, hope to bring out some of the issues that were going on in in uh, not in Kirtland, but in Nauvoo and, and why 132 is, is why it exists, why it exists and why it's a little bit problematic. Heber J. Grant wanted to completely get rid of it. Um, and not just because, not just because they were trying to back away from polygamy, uh, but because he's like, this is not, it, it had to do with content issue. And so, but there were a lot of fundamentalists in the church, a lot of, um, old time polygamists, uh, families who had, had invested so much of their suffering and sacrifice into living polygamy and, and adopting that identity that they, uh, they, they fought them on it. And so we still have one thirty one thirty two, but just so everybody knows, it has been on the chopping block before um, in the 1920s to be removed out of the DNC. And the president of the church wanted to do it. Heber J. Grant wanted to do it. Uh, but he, he kind of acquiesced to, to a lot of the opinions in the day. And it, it's kind of remained ever since. But in, in starting off, um, we're also coming to an end with the revelations. In fact, 132 is the last revelation that we have of Joseph Smith. Um, 133 is a revelation, but it's from 1831. So 132 is going to be really the last quote unquote revelation. And Ben and I, you can discuss about uh, the the merits about what kind of revel, quote unquote revelation this is. But uh, here beginning in 129, 130 and 131, these aren't revelations. These are specified as instructions. So at mm -hmm. this time, these aren't exactly Joseph going in and getting a revelation and coming out and saying, Hey, thus saith the Lord in this kind of way. But it, th these are, these, you know, like you were, you were saying before we recorded, these are moments when Joseph is giving a sermon just in maybe in a, on a Sunday or at some unofficial time and someone's shorthanding and, and writing these down. And then later they, you know, they retranscribe them and, and kind of mash them together and they put these, these together, you know, and it could be even from two different complete sermons, as we're going to see. I think in uh, in 131 is it 131? That's yeah, it's actually two completely different sermons on two different dates that get put into into the same one. So, um, in 129, this is where we get the famous shake an angel's hand to see if he's real. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, for all the times that that's it never happened to me. Um, I'm glad <laughs> I have those three grand keys that we'll talk about. Depends what you mean by angel. That's right. <laughs> I'm sure. And then in section 130, uh, it's just, it's kind of a hodgepodge. There's, there's so much here. So it's like, what is the general theme? I, I don't know, but we have 
doctrines about the appearance of the Savior. We have premillennialist and millennialist ideas about what the the earth is going to be or like what heaven is like and, and about God residing on a great Urim and Thummim. I don't even know what it's that assorted means. assorted teachings of Joseph Smith. It's like, you know, we just had Halloween. It's like you, you put your hand in the bag and you just, whatever you pull out, that's what you get. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way of putting that. This is an assortment. Some of it's Snickers. Some of it's uh, some of it's peanut butter M and M's. Some of it's uh, <laughs> you know the what is it the uh, candy candy corn that nobody likes. Yeah, I so love candy like, corn. <laughs> I like candy corn too. There's so many people who don't like candy corn. <laughs> I actually kind of like it. My kids throw it at me like, Dad, do you want the candy corn? I'm like, Yeah, yeah, I want the candy corn. Um. But yeah, so there's a lot of we can we can divulge in section 130 in 130, and then 131 is really short, and it kind of gives us a, just a, a hiccup of a preface into 132, and then for, at that point, I'll start reading some Ben Park. We're going to kind of contextualize some history, and really, what we want to do is is just in complete openness. What I would really like to happen is for those who've listened in who polygamy is an issue that doesn't land for you. Just know that it doesn't land for me either. And it's it's one of those issues that for most of my life, I've been kind of um, like right down the middle of it. It's like, I've never wanted to practice it. I, it. It never interested me. It wasn't a topic that I even ever thought about. It was not a thing that affected my life. It, like I, I lived in a very particularly privileged part of Mormonism. <laughs> Where it's just like, it was out of sight, out of mind, and sure. occasionally someone would bring it up, right? Or we would laugh about it if uh, in a missionary context of like, we ever talk to someone who's not from Utah and they find out we're either LDS or we're from, from Utah and they're like, are, are you are you, are you Mormon? Are you a polygamist? You know, do you have more than one wife? And so it's that kind of joke and that's the context that it comes up and it's the only time I ever thought about it. But the more I've actually listened to women and interestingly enough to a lot of men i've come to recognize that my experience is very unique and that there's a lot of pain that still exists around these narratives and it's a lot of pain and trauma that is often unspoken and unaddressed and when this conversation is brought out it's always quickly swept back under the rug and so we don't have enough time here on this podcast to be able to go into this. As I said, we've given a few sources. But what I would really hope, it would be a successful episode for me if at the end of it, someone felt heard and understood in the feelings that they have felt that this particular issue has been difficult for them, trauma-inducing it. They have felt that they are alone and they have had to remain silent about it just to let you know yeah. you're not alone. Right. So we'll get, we'll get to that point, but here starting in section, uh, section 129, this is really pretty quick and, and, and <laughs> all the things for Joseph to be talking about, um, February 9th, 1843, there are two kinds of beings in heaven, namely angels who have are resurrected personages having bodies of flesh and bone like physical embodied and those who are spirits of just men made perfect who are not resurrected, but inherit the same glory. Now, Ben, I, there's some doctrine here with the whole spirits of just men made perfect. Um, I, you know, I've, I've read a bunch of stuff on this. 
but I, I don't necessarily want to spend all the time talking about it. How about you? Do you have anything to say about the spirits of Justin made perfect? Couple, couple thoughts that I have on it. Okay. Give yes. us one, one thought is more like circumstantial. Like how, how odd is it? I mean, I, I think Joseph knows that at this point, you know, he's had people after him for quite a while now. Um, they're after him because uh, Missouri's after him uh, because of of the attempted assassination of of Governor Boggs. Um, you know, uh, other people are are after him, upset about the polygamy thing. Um, he's got some a lot of political stuff going on right now, where where people are are upset with him and how he's handled stuff politically. Um, I think he kind of knows that, that things are dangerous and, and maybe there's this part of him that feels like he needs to impart every, every bit of knowledge of, of how to handle things and, and, and move forward with, with what he's put into place to his close associates. Right. And, and, and we, we say as much in, in our things, talk about how he's, you know, given the keys and, and all the stuff to, to the apostles. Um, and so I think how, how somewhat comical it is that Joseph Smith, um, goes to his associates and says, Hey, you guys, when you see angels, this is what you need to do, you know, cause this is like, this is normal for Joseph. <laughs> like, <laughs> and like for a lot of other people, it's like, Joseph, this is not normal for everybody else, right? <laughs> right. And so it, it's a little bit comical to me that 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 Joseph would would talk in this way as if it were something normal. Hey, you know, when an angel comes, this is what you guys need to do. You know. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say about it that I thought was interesting that I don't know that it had stood out to me before was this in verse three. It says, "Secondly, the spirits of just men made perfect; they who are not resurrected." but inherit the same glory. Well, this kind of raises a question here. Like, how can you inherit the same glory as a resurrected being if you're not resurrected, right? So this goes back to a point that we've brought up quite a bit, which is that these states of glory are epistemic, not metaphysical. And your con your physical condition as a spirit or in a body or whatever doesn't in and of itself determine your experience of a state of glory. And so I think that's something very interesting to pull out from this, that despite their physical or even metaphysical condition as a spirit or a body, these people can, these beings can still exist within that glory, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fascinating to, to recognize. I, I, that was such an interesting shift in my own view to be able to recognize the kingdom of glory from meta metaphysical into an epistemic point of view and just what came from that. So I love that you brought that up into the into that glory, that it becomes the awareness of it. But here was, just so everybody knows, as we're moving on from 129, um, if you ever have an angelic minister angel come to you and say, hey, I'm an angel, shake its hand. And if it yeah. puts out its hand and it shakes your hand, then, uh, hey, you're good to go. Listen. Oh, also, it's not here, but there is another source from uh, from Joseph Smith that I'm aware of where he says that if the angel has sound, sandy blonde hair, it's a devil angel. Don't listen to it. 
So <laughs> Sandy, Sandy Blonde Hair is out. I don't think so, I'd heard that one. <laughs> yeah, Sandy Blonde Hair is out. So, don't, so don't, that's not in 129. That's in another source. But yeah, Sandy Blonde Hair, don't don't listen to them. But if they, they come without Sandy Blonde Hair, they shake your hand. Awesome. If it's a devil, they put out your hand. Then at that point, uh, you're going to shake it, but you don't feel anything. And so it's uh, kind of like a... A wet noodle that you don't feel, but if it's a if it's an if it's a spirit of a just man made perfect, then they're just going to be all stoic about it. They're not going to reach out their hand, and they're just going to give you the message. They don't want to deceive you. They don't want to deceive you. So if it's a good guy, he'll shake your hand and you'll feel it, or he won't shake your hand at all. But if he shakes your hand and you don't feel it, there's your three grand keys. So I, I figure this is one of those situations. You'd, you'd never think you're going to need it until the one time in your life where you do. Right. So You got to keep so. this in your back pocket. So um, <laughs> it, it, verse five is also interesting to me because it, it shows this um, just this attitude that Joseph Smith had about angels, right? That, that these were kind of like normal beings that an angel would consent to shake your hand, right? That someone from the presence of God would be willing to shake anybody anybody's hand and and there's something to that because like in the mind of joseph smith as we get into this next section god is a man right he he is so far above us and beyond our comprehension and at the exact same time he's just like us and this idea that god is so far beyond us beyond our comprehension and also just like us um, is something that uh, is distinctly Joseph Smith, like not not uniquely. Um, this was has been treated by Christianity for a long time in the personage of of Christ, right? Being being God, but then also condescending to be a man. But just the way that Joseph Smith talks about, but God in general, um, and then to have this verse here that an angel would come and and consent to shake your hand, um, you know, like an equal. I think that's that says something about his theology. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a good good pull away. On on section one thirty, so this is given just a little bit later. Um, you know, we have February 9th in eighteen forty three. Now we're skipping to April second, and this is this is the assortment, <laughs> the, <laughs> the assortment section. And and we do we have a bunch of just really different vignettes of of thought here that all kind of get uh, crammed together, but it starts off that you can tell that. This is what's on Joseph's mind, and that's why I think I like section 130 is because it does, it does give us a glimpse into what is on Joseph's mind, what he's thinking about, how he's thinking about it, what he's preaching, kind of where the, the these saints are and where their mind is at at the time. And come to find out, they're very, they're very premillennialist. Mm-hmm. You know, they're very much waiting for Jesus to come. They're, they're right there at the precipice. Now, this is not unique to Mormonism. You know, to, to the early saints, this is not unique to their group. This is... An American phenomenon as well. So this is this is a shared kind of end of second great awakening kind of phenomenon as well. And so he's talking about when the Savior comes, he's going to appear as he was a man like ourselves, right? And that the same sociality which exists among us here will exist with us there, only it would be coupled with eternal glory, which glory we do not now enjoy. So, so there is a type of this awareness, all right, that we don't now we're not now aware of. And that gets into uh, concepts here of angels. Now, what are angels? But uh, they, it says, I answer yes, but they are no angels who minister to this earth, but those who do belong or to have belonged to it. Okay. 
backstory here. Ben, do you remember the summer we met? <laughs> I know what you're going to bring up. <laughs> <laughs> this is still one of my favorite stories of all time. And I think about it every time I read this verse. <laughs> Just so you know. So this is in the summer of 2005. And you and I and your cousin Royal, we are selling pest control door to door in San Diego, California. And we are having a deep theological conversation because at one point I brought you up. You don't see I the said, quote marks. Deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because at one point I, I forgot how the conversation brought up, but I said, what, what would be the case? Cause I was hypothesizing, um, maybe hoping a little bit. If there happened to be some kind of intergalactic space priesthood Jedi, <laughs> like if there was some like, you know, like inter cosmic priesthood Jedi that were going from planet to planet and, and maybe we're protecting our planet from like other things. What if that were the case? You know, these, <laughs> these, these are kind of deep conversations we were having so many years ago. And, and you said that's uh, something like that's stupid. <laughs> Well, I think you were talking about, so here's the way I remember it. I remember you bringing up, Hey, why wouldn't there be aliens that have visited the earth? And, and I'm, and I kind of laughed at your idea because you were going to go somewhere a little more serious with it. And I made fun of it. I said, well, what do you mean? Intergalactic space Jedi. And so, um, yeah, priesthood space Jedi, something like that. <laughs> See, yeah, that that's great because then we use this verse and you're like, no, 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 no. There would never be any any galactic specialty because DNC one thirty. I'm like because of DNC one thirty. DNC one thirty doesn't talk about intergalactic space priesthood Jedi. <laughs> and you said no. It says here about angels. And then you read verses four and five. In answer to the question, is not the reckoning of God's time, angels' time, prophets' time, and man's time according to the planet on which they reside? I answer yes, but there is no angels who minister to this earth, but those who do belong or have belonged to it. And so, so we use that verse to be able to argue that there are no messengers, there are no intergalactic priesthood Jedi who do visit this earth that have not henceforth actually belonged on it. Right. That have been born or will be born or whatever on this. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so no priesthood aliens. That's the that's the idea. Yeah, that's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, I, it does make me wonder, like, who who asked this question, and why is why is five an answer to it? I guess um, it, it, all of this really surrounds the cosmology that Joseph Smith brings into play, especially with like the Book of Abraham thinking about things on on a grand cosmic scale and talking about um, the creation in in a much more literal sense than uh, much of Christianity would would have been comfortable uh, approaching it for instance in in the book of Abraham it talks about there there actually being a planet and a star that that's where God dwells right? that places God physically within a universe that I think the majority of Christianity wasn't going to be comfortable with, right? God has always been outside of space and time. And so again, this comes in with Joseph Smith's idea of God as yes, this eternal supernal being that we don't really understand, but also, also he's much closer to us 
and we can understand him in an ab- in a in a literal way, not just an abstract way. So uh, again, I can I think it kind of kind of brings that into focus. So do you understand Ben when it talks about the place where God resides is the great Yermanthamum? Give me your thoughts. Do I understand? I think I think maybe a better question is what do you think? I don't know that I understand. What what I think he means by this is I I think he's positing the earth, the earth the way that we see it now um is in a telestial existence, but when it moves to a terrestrial and then celestial existence, it takes on different properties, looks different and we interact with the actual planet in a different way. I'm not sure how much to pull out of this, um, but there are some very interesting parallels. I mean, for one, if if you study um, like contemporary um, futurists or um, space exploration people that write about this and 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 discuss it. They do talk about, um, you know, different planets and planes of existence and dimensions where these kinds of things would make sense. And so it's a, it's a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting, like pseudoscience or protoscience mixed with some, you know, religious uh, overtones here for Joseph Smith to inject these kinds of things. And it's always, um, it's always attracted a very uh, strong fascination from uh, Latter-day Saints within the realm of science. Looking at these kinds of things, Joseph Smith's cosmology, how does that fit into a progressive understanding of science and astronomy that's happened over the past 150 years? You know, Latter-day Saints have been very excited to to see times when things kind of like seem to fit or or match or or really go along with how Joseph Smith was talking about things. Verse four kind of alludes to the theory of relativity that was not a thing at all, you know, in Joseph Smith's time. And so, like I said, there's all these kinds of things that that Latter-day Saints like to see um, pop out of of Joseph Smith's um, teachings that kind of say, "Aha, you know, this is this is he's he's." He's explaining it from a spiritual perspective, but it actually ends up matching with science, right? And so, you know, we get into a lot of that stuff uh, later on. What kind of is interesting to me is, and again, it's just interesting. I don't know exactly what to make of it, but um, verse 9 talks about how the the planet, the Earth, says it becomes a Urim and Thummim whereby all things pertaining to an inferior kingdom or all kingdoms of a lower order will be manifest to those who dwell on it, and this earth will be Christ's. And then it goes and talks about a white stone that's a personal urinum, where things pertaining to a higher order of kingdoms will be made known. Okay, so we've got the planet that you dwell on teaching you about everything that's of a lower kingdom or lower kingdoms, and then your own personal urinum that teaches you everything about like a higher kingdom, right? Um, I this is this has fascinated me in in various ways in in a couple parallels here. So one is that 
from this personal stone perspective that you can get revelation from and learn things from, this seems so eerily analogous to like the use of cell phones these days that um, I don't know how to get away from the comparison, right? Because straight up, <laughs> straight up verse 11 says this, it says, whereon is a new name written, which no man knoweth save he that receiveth it. The new name is the key word. And it's like, okay, so you're saying I have this thing in my hand that can teach me stuff and there's a password to get into it that only I know, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, it's just so, it, it's it's just such a funny coincidental, if you want to call it that, <laughs> type of, <laughs> of uh, melding there, right? Um, but I, I want to say that, you know, our, the purpose of these white stones is to is that we may understand things it says pertaining to a higher order of kingdoms. And, and that just to me raises the question, you know, if these are analogous to cell phones, are we using our cell phones to learn about things of a higher order of kingdoms? Or are we doing what it says in the previous verse and we're learning about a lower order of kingdoms from our cell phones, right? <laughs> I love it. So everyone listening, make sure that you're listening to higher order things and listening to high, and doing higher order things on your phone. <laughs> so then I want to flip this again. Okay. So <laughs> Do it. I want to flip this again because let's say, let's say the, a, a big part of what people do on their cell phones really is pertaining to a lower order of kingdoms. What do I mean by that? I mean, they're doing things on their phone or looking at things on their phone or spending time on their phone, doing things that aren't really um, making them a better person, right? They're, they're wastes of time or resources or, or, or just nonsense. And so these are like a lower order of kingdoms, right? That we're looking into, uh, social media is a lower order of kingdom. Okay. Um, doesn't have to be, but, <laughs> <laughs> but if you put down your phone and you go out into the world and you experience nature and you sit and you listen and you contemplate, or you're just silent or prayer, then the earth starts revealing you to you things of a higher kingdom, right? Yeah. So it's almost like the flip of this, whereas this world that these people are dwelling on is supposed to reveal to them things of a lower kingdom, and then this stone is supposed to reveal the higher kingdom. I almost see the reverse happening in our day and age now. That so much of our our over um, attention and attachment to our phones that you know no end of people have have pointed out um, teaches us things of a lower order. But if if we can go out and be in nature, be in the world, experience those things, we start um, learning things of a higher kingdom, right? So. I can honestly say that I have never thought about cell phones when reading that particular verse, but I will pro I'm going to write it right here right now so that whenever <laughs> I read it, I will never not think of cell phones. And cell phones. Okay, perfect. I got it written down. <laughs> <laughs> I love the comparison because, I mean, it, it really does. I don't know. 
you know, the stones throughout history, seer stones and and runes and other types of physical objects that people report. The brother of Jared with his, you know, with his stones that he had created to to show light in the barges. And Joseph Smith, and he had the seer stone that he used to translate the plates. He also had another, I think it was a green stone. Um, if I remember the color correctly, he had a brown stone and a green stone, but he preferred the brown stone. Um, I, I think it's just absolutely fascinating that kind of original magical worldview, you know, to borrow a, a phrase from D. Michael Quinn's book, of how that they, they lived on it and how that really gets into these kinds of, uh, this, these kinds of thinking. But can we at some point be able to apply our own understanding? In, in these kinds of scriptures in, in that kind of way. And so I do. I mean, I like the cell phone. I like the cell phone comparison. Here in section in verse 14, also, we have the very, f- the famous prophecy of Joseph Smith, because uh, in, in a pre-millennial, I can never say this word right, pre-millenarian worldview. So th- this is those religions and those, those groups and those, those sects that believe in the millennium. And so everything that they're doing is pre millennium. <laughs> anyway, um, we have Joseph who's desperately trying to figure out when Jesus is coming. When, when's he coming back? And he's desperately trying to figure it out. And basically he gets an answer saying, stop talking to me about this. It's like, if you live to be the age of what is it 85? Yeah. If they're in 15. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. you live until you're 85, you will see the face of the son of man. Stop talking to me about it. Let this suffice you. Right. Yeah. And Joseph is like, so he did not, basically, so God didn't tell me what that meant. I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Am I going to be here when it happens? Am I going to be dead? Is that when I'm going to die when it happens? I, and so he says, I'm just going to say that it's, I don't think it's going to happen any sooner than then. And that's not what it's going to be. <laughs> and, and I love that, that that's just randomly here in, in section 130. Well, it's odd because he says that this was back in 1832. It's almost like he wrote it in a journal and, and you know, again, he's just now telling people what he had in, in the journal back then. And there's something, I think, instructive about the process so much that, you know, it, it brings out the idea that Joseph Smith, when he sought a revelation, didn't always get exactly what he asked for or exactly what he was hoping to understand. And he says so much here, you know, he, it's almost like the Lord is saying, Hey, you know, I can't, if I gave you the answer to your question right now, you wouldn't understand it. Or you're not, it's almost like he's saying, you're not even asking the right question, Joseph. And so he he says, okay, well, if you live till you're 85, then then you'll you'll see me. And so Joseph Smith says, verse 16, I was left thus without being able to decide whether this coming referred to the beginning of the millennium or to some previous appearing, or whether I should die and thus see his face. And so um again, I, I think it's so in, so fascinating to me that Joseph Smith literally received a revelation and didn't know what it meant. Right, like it's like the Lord said this to me, but I didn't understand it, and I, I think that's helpful and instructive to us. You know that it's okay if the Lord tells you something and you don't quite understand it. Write it down and think about it, ponder it. You know, over time, that's a good thing to to just hold on to. 
<laughs> unless the Lord tells you, until the Lord, unless the Lord tells you not to, then don't do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I did, I did want to say something about verse seven. Um, maybe this is what you were asking me and I skipped ahead to some other verses. This is something interesting here because we've kind of talked about this concept. They reside in the presence of God on a globe of sea, a globe like a sea of glass and fire, where all things for their glory are manifest, past, present, and future, and are continually before the Lord. So we talked about the eternal now, right? And how like a time for God isn't really a thing. Time is measured only unto man, as other scriptures say. Um, I talked about an analogy that I did uh, one time with some seminary students where they put their hand in a bag and they kind of felt around on a, like a, a plastic, a figurine to try to figure out what it was. And um, through the process of feeling around and over time of sequence, they discovered and understood roughly what this thing was. But then when you pull it out of the bag and it's just there in front of you, you instantly know what it is. You don't have to go through a process of of feeling and and thinking. And maybe even your feeling it inside the bag didn't tell you exactly what it was. Um, You kind of had an idea, but it wasn't you weren't 100% sure. But then when you pull it out of the bag, you know for sure. And this is an analogy that fits this here, what they're talking about, how how God sees things, past, present, and future. Everything is, is now. Your future self and your past self and your present self aren't a different person. They're all you. And it's just a matter of what is manifest to you in the time. It's that all things for their glory are manifest, past, present, and future, right? So it's a place where when we're there in that place with God, we see that unity of things. Everything is is in one. It's before us. We're not a different person, past, present, and future we're just there with God. Yeah, I like that. I like that. It does. It brings everything down and back into that present moment that we've talked about. I guess the other phrase for that that I've used is that sitting with God, that yeah. uh, that presence sure. there with God. I like that. In verse 18, it talks about whatever principle of intelligence we t- Now, this, this verse means something differently to me now, and I'm not sure if I like the meaning of it as much as I did before. <laughs> Um, it's interesting when scripture changes its meaning to where you're like, yeah, I don't like the meaning of that one anymore. Um, but anyway, verse 18, whatever principle of intelligence we attain to in this life, it will rise up with us in the resurrection. Okay, that's cool. And if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. Now, this is interesting. This is a, like almost like an economic competitive vibe. Right. Yeah, why, why why the word advantage? Why the word yeah, why the word advantage? That's a very like economic concept of hey, you're going to have more ability to be able to do stuff. You know, more than someone else. And I'm like and and just what we're talking about with the presentness there, when I become more present, I become less competitive. I I become completely um what's the word I'm looking for? Uh it's not unaware. It's I don't care. I don't, I don't care what other is indifferent. indifferent to yeah, keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the next door neighbors, right? Keeping up with the next person, uh, being able to have as much as them. And the, the concept of like diligence and obedience, you know, we've talked about, uh, we've talked about that. And, uh, I think even recently when Christopher on is talking with Christopher is that this idea of 
acting with love. No, that's it was the the episode I just did with Riley over at uh, Latter Day Contemplation on loving kindness. It's some of us have a discipleship where we act out of a desire for obedience to the law. And, and, and I equated that to the, you know, those, everybody who's been on a mission knows that there are some missionaries who are like, you obey the rules because then God will bless you. If you don't obey the rules, God won't bless you. Mm. And so it's just you obey the rules and then God's quid pro quo and he's going to give you the blessings to it. And then on my, on my mission, there's also some missionaries who have learned and become kind of attuned to this, this concept of loving God. And in my mission, it was that we had learned to like, recognize that the mission president loved us. And I didn't really get that at first, but as soon as I, I went to like the first zone conference and I was there with the, with the mission president, and his wife and his wife gave me a big hug. And I just felt the genuine authenticity of their love. It wasn't that I, I, I knew I couldn't disappoint him. I knew that I couldn't let him down. I knew that, that, that love was just, I want to exist and act in that love. And so that was, I just, I just acted because I love, I loved them. So whatever they asked is like, yeah, let's do that. Let's work, work together and do that. And so obedience just became an act of love as opposed to obedience as a matter of rule to be able to have blessings. So when, when I look here and I see this diligence and obedience that you gain more knowledge and intelligence by your diligence and obedience, quite frankly, Ben, I've learned more about God recently by letting go and just sitting than I have in all of my life like actively scrounging to like do the next service project, do the next thing beyond the next thing, the next growth phase, the next growth cycle of just sitting in the, in the present moment in the sitting in the now and being with God. I have grown more in my relationship with the divine doing that. So I think in a lot of ways, I think in Joseph's day, this diligence and obedience is very much the same. It's kind of in the church culture of being anxiously engaged in a good cause. You know, if you have a moment to breathe, then you're not doing it right <laughs> or whatever. And I think that leads to anxiety. So when I look at this as the intelligence and knowledge that we gain from diligence and obedience, that doesn't mean anxiety and always moving on to the next. And this is a very American capitalistic corporate way of looking at things, right? Always on it, always on the hurry, always on the run, always on the move. But in a lot of other ways, diligence and obedience can simply be seen as, I learned to sit with God just by being present here with God and seeing what came from that. And in that particular case, the advantage there is not over another. The advantage there is, I got to taste of what this life was really about. Um, whereas before I was running in my stories and running in my stories about reality as opposed to just living in reality and sitting with God. So anyway, maybe I don't dislike 19 as much as I thought it was <laughs> I kind of <laughs> myself through that, but yeah, it's a different way of looking at it. Well, I, you know, it takes some diligence and, and obedience to understand 19, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> indeed. Uh, yeah. The word advantage is, is a little, a little difficult to get past for me here, but it, it seems uh, largely rhetorical. When when you're trying to teach someone and, and persuade them to to be um, more interested in a relationship with God here and now, rather than saying, hey, you know what? You're going to see God when you die, so just eat, drink, and be merry, right? 
it, it seems more of a rhetorical way of saying, hey, you know, like you can actually experience God now, you know, you don't have to wait until you die. And the advantage to that is just like you said, you're going to have, you know, life will be more meaningful for you if you do that. And so, again, I see advantage as, as potentially something just more of a rhetorical way of putting it, um, because otherwise, like, if it's in a competitive way, it doesn't really make sense to me. The verse doesn't make sense to me. There's no, it's not a competition, you know, so. Yeah. Now, on verse 22, this is a little bit uh, interesting, because it's something that I'm I'm actually writing a, a paper for one of my classes right now on wh- what I've labeled unmaking scripture, but I'm, I'm writing on how the lectures on faith were taken out of the Doctrine and Covenants in the 1920s. But one of the, the, the topics that comes up with that conversation of why they took the lectures on faith out of the Doctrine and Covenants, because the lectures on faith are a series of seven lectures, um, or they call catechisms, that were basically questions and answers that established a more rigid, thorough th- uh, theology. You're supposed mm-hmm. to memorize them and being able to recite them orally. Um, but the lectures on faith that were created in the school of the prophets in the 1834, 1835 era, uh, we don't really know if it was Joseph who wrote them, but we mostly think now that it was Sidney Rigdon who actually wrote the lectures on faith and they were included in the doctrine and covenants as the actual doctrine of the doctrine and covenants. And so when you removed the, the, the lectures on faith, you kind of got rid of the doctrine portion of it. So a lot of people have said, well, why do they do that? So that's kind of the topic of the paper that I'm writing. But one of the theories that people have talked about about why they've done it has to do with Lecture 5, specifically Lecture 5, Paragraph 2, because Lecture 5, Paragraph 2 is the specific paragraph that talks about the nature of the Godhead. And so this being written in 1834, 1835, 1836 era, it is a little bit problematic because of how it it deals with defining the Godhead, because it defines the um, God the Father as a spirit, and it defines the Son as the Son made flesh, Mm -hmm. and because he's made flesh, and then it defines the Holy Ghost as the mind the, the unified mind between the Father, who's a spirit, and the Son, which is flesh. God, and then that is the Godhead. Well, that's highly, highly Trinitarian. I mean, that's, that's basically the, a good textbook definition of Trinitarianism. And so people have wondered, like, well, what is Trinitarianism doing in an 1835 Joseph thing? Didn't Joseph see God the Father and Jesus Christ and automatically know that God the Father had a body? And so this has kind of spiraled out into some, like, theological questions and, and historicity issues. And, and so anyway, there are some, there's some really great um, things that have already been written on it, written about it. There's a couple articles you can find online. One of them is by a guy named Dan Vogel. He's a Mormon historian. And the article is called The Earliest Mormon Concept of God. I actually just ordered the book. There's a bunch of essays on Mormon doctrine called Line Upon Line, where there's a, a lot of Mormon historians and essayists who have created a lot of essays on on, uh, on Mormon history topic. It's an older book. I think it was written in 89, uh, 1989. But uh, yeah, Dan Vogel's um, article in there on the earliest, uh, the earliest Mormon concept of God goes through and documents that whole lectures on faith issue. And brings that here into this verse in 130, because here in verse 22 of section 130, we now have it saying, The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also, but the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit, were it not so the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. 
And so e- even if we remember going back to um, going back to section 88 and section 76, when it was talking about God being in and through all things, right? That light of Christ being in and through all things. And this was, uh, this was largely, I think, still in, uh, um, still in like 1832. So, so we're almost 10 years down the line from where they were at in 1832 when they were having this, uh, panentheistic view of God being in and through all things to where now, this the idea of God is evolving, and so now they see that the Father has a body of flesh and bones and is as tangible as man's, and the Son also. Whereas even in 1835, with the lectures on faith, God the Father was still defined as a spirit, and so it really it's really within those those six seven years where this evolution begins to happen. So it's it's a really interesting verse that way. Well, I I see this as largely a a theological difference between uh, Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith. So you know. The lectures on faith were mostly probably written by Sidney Rigdon, as you say, and so he was he was already um, a minister and and versed in a lot of theology and stuff. So that's that's his explanation. That's how he uh, explained and articulated God. I don't know that Joseph Smith. Um, had a, a better way of articulating it at the time. I'm not even sure Joseph Smith understood all the implications. We talked about this when we did uh, our first podcast, maybe uh, on Joseph Smith's uh, first vision. I don't know that he really fully understood what he had experienced. And it, it took him many years to digest that. We've got the different versions and everything for him to really like come out with a way of articulating what he really experienced when he went and prayed. Right. And so his concept of God as having a physical body, that doesn't directly immediately follow from the experience that he had in the first vision necessarily. He could have drawn that conclusion, but you could have just as easily drawn the conclusion that, that uh, Sidney Rigdon did. So I see this as largely a, a theological if at first a a, a, a th- not necessarily a difference but a divergence whereas Sidney Rigdon kind of stuck with this conventional notion or or uh, uh, characterization of god as outlined in the lectures on faith Joseph Smith moved into uh, a more corporeal defined um way of of expressing god this comes out when you read the King Follett discourse. Um, there's several times in there where Joseph Smith, um, even though Rigdon's not present, he kind of calls him out and said, and because he's talking about, he's teaching this doctrine about God and he's quoting scriptures. And there's this one time in, a, in particular, I remember where he says, mark it, brother Rigdon, right? And so he's kind of like calling out Sidney Rigdon because I think this was a disagreement between them at the time about some theology. And Joseph Smith was moving in the direction of, of God as a, a, you know, having a body and, and this development of theology. And I don't think Sidney Rigdon was ready to move there. Notwithstanding the, the visions and experiences he's had with Joseph Smith, he, he didn't quite conceptualize of God in the same way. So. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, it's not to say that one or the other is wrong. Just like you know, it's it's a different way of articulating your your understanding of it, and and I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. Now, I know that when you come down to that that lecture five, when it talks about God as a spirit, you know, Joseph Smith would would often explain that way, and he say, "Oh yeah, God is a spirit. Um, he has a body too." <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> right. Yep. 
So on, uh, so moving on, when we get here to uh, section 131, we're starting to see kind of the beginning origins and, and the beginning talk about this this Abrahamic project. It's how Ben Park describes what's going on here. And it really is by the time they are starting to, you know, when Joseph is, is dealing with the book of Abraham, that he begins to really develop this, what's known as the Mormon cosmology, this, the origin story of the universe through the more, through the Mormon lens. Right. And, and that's, this is really being hyperactively developed in Nauvoo. And as we talked about last week, Polygamy is one is one issue in polygamy and how they and how they're going to enact polygamy and the reasons why they're enacting polygamy. Um, initially, it seems to be mostly focused on the fact of connecting the family of God together. Um, but if that was the only reason they were doing it, how they went about doing it was really weird. Um, and so it, there's a lot of people like, was that really the whole reason why they did it? Um, that way, because it just, it, it kind of landed sideways so often, but we do begin to see that Joseph is having a moment with, uh, um, developing this Mormon cosmology with how human beings and how human relationships act. And it, it's very patriarchal and, and that whole patriarchy side of it is very male dominant that women are subservient to men and women typically exist as raising up seed and children and glory unto the, their husband, unto the man that, that they're under and that they're subservient to. And that's very much the way that uh, these references are framed. And we're going to see this here in how section, eventually in section 132, in how this is framed. But uh, do you have anything to say here in about 131, Ben, uh, until I get into some Ben Park? Um, uh, another just... Uh commentary on a point of doctrine here you know in verse seven i've always found this a, a fascinating teaching of of joseph smith that it, it's not out of place in time i mean there were certainly like philosophers and some of those who were you know proto-chemists who were thinking about the nature of matter and, and stuff that that posited certain things like this but but he was uh, one that sort of codified it, 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 you know, in religion, and it fit into the cosmology that he was developing, the plan of salvation, that the narrative that came about, uh, nature of God, all of that. It fit in well with this, and it's this concept here. There's no such thing as immaterial matter. All spirit is matter, but it is more fine or pure and can only be discerned by purer eyes. We cannot see it, but when our bodies are purified, we shall see that it is all matter. So this just sort of underlines, uh, again, Joseph Smith's cosmology, his understanding of the nature of reality in the universe and God and man's place in it. So in, in Joseph Smith's cosmology, God is in the universe. He's master of the universe, but he's part of it, right? He's co-eternal with the elements. And spirit is just another form of matter it's not something beyond matter it's another form of matter that maybe transcends our current experience but it's not separate from the material existence altogether and so again this is this is somewhat at least from a christian perspective this is somewhat of a a novel idea um, that everything could be uh, explained in in these terms again tries to intersect later with with scientific understanding so 
Yeah. I, I do that. And, and it is. We're going to see here that, uh, you know, this is in 1843. By the time the King Follett sermon comes around, uh, just shortly before, I think it happens in April or May of 1844, just before he's he's killed in, in June. Um, that's where we really get a lot of our concepts of God. The King Follett discourse really becomes a foundational element to what we typically ascribe to the nature of God him having a physical body and kind of that whole as man now is, God once was, as God now is, man become that kind of concept that I think it was Lorenzo Snow who coined that term as based on the on the King Fallout. I think it was Snow. But yeah. Eliza, that, Eliza R. Snow actually brought it up. Oh, did? Okay. It was so, Eliza R. Snow that, that brought that about. Yeah. So in that, uh, so in this particular way, we start to see that whole spirit is matter. And, and Joseph has been thinking about this for a while. That uh, the, the nature of the spirit, the metaphysics of of the spirit. So yeah, it's it's absolutely a fascinating um, verse. <laughs> okay, section one thirty two. <laughs> okay, uh, where do we begin? So section one thirty two is is a, a section that very few people want to tackle, and and I don't even know if I really feel up for the task for the kind of the magnitude of of what this is, but. I think a little bit of context goes a long way, and and so I'm going to turn to to Ben Park here for that. But there's there are so many myths surrounding polygamy, and some of the myths were are historical myths. Um, you know, like for instance, the justifications for why polygamy existed. Um, at one point, there was a massive justification that we needed to bring more spirit children into the world, into Mormon households to give them, you know, to have them born in the covenant so that polygamy afforded more children to be born in. Well, we found, we've recently found out, you know, through studies that that wasn't actually true, that, uh, that first wives, for instance, would have, uh, many children, but that subsequent wives, second, third, fourth, fifth, all the way down the line to however many wives were in a family, actually had fewer fewer children than monogamous marriages. So if there was just one man, one woman, that woman would have more children than the second, third, fourth, or fifth wife of a polygamous marriage. So if, and we also know that there were a lot of men who were not being married, that they, they were looking for wives, but just the men. <laughs> Just the math doesn't seem to work out there. Mm-hmm. If you end up having one man who has 10 wives, well, there, there's, there's nine other men who don't. And I was talking with uh, Christina Rossetti, who's a Catholic scholar who studies Mormon fundamentalism, and she had recognized that just the math of polygamy doesn't work out. And in fact, it actually shows that on a, a temporal lived in this life, it actually goes to show that no man is assured salvation. Because as per section 132, to be able to obtain this, you have to enter into the, the into the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. And unless you have a wife or, or multiple wives to be able to do that, you cannot get into the highest degree of the celestial king. You cannot get into the, to, into that realm. You will, you will stay an angel, a ministering angel um, to the gods. And so if you are a man among a society where all the women have been confiscated into the hands of a few, you're not uh, insured salvation that way. So it's just, it's a, it's a really interesting problem where number one, a lot of their, the myths that supported the reasons for it end up falling apart. But at least as it's initially enacted, polygamy is a high cost social commitment and it's a high cost social experiment where 
these early saints are being tested with their loyalty to Joseph Smith and to, and to Mormonism in general. This is also challenging the norms of the religious boundaries of the day. It's as, it's as, it's, it is as strange then as it is now, but even then there were other groups that, you know, because this is the, the, a new America, this is a new awakening. This was in the, the end, you know, the second great awakening had already kind of fizzled out, but we still have other groups who are experimenting with sexuality and, and, these ways, different ways of being, but yet we still have heavily Puritan-esque groups and committed societies, covenanted societies who are highly pious and virtuous, and they look with disdain upon them. So there's this weird balance in, in America going on at the time. So to have Mormonism practicing a new weird version of marriage with polygamy would be weird, but it's not outside the social context of the day because there's other groups doing other weird things too. Um, polygamy eventually is what is the catalyst that eventually leads Joseph Smith to Carthage, um, indirectly because William Law is going to be the person who ends up disaffecting from the church. He gets the Nauvoo expositor. He he prints one art, one newspaper, um, in 1844, exposing the polygamy going on in, in, uh, Nauvoo because Joseph had kept everything secret and everybody who was practicing had kept it secret and had lied to the public that there was being practiced saying it wasn't happening when it was in fact very much happening and happening in a very large degree. And so they kind of exposed a few things and, you know, there were some liberties taken. There were things that were very, very true and there were things that weren't. So the city, by this time, Joseph was the mayor and the Nauvoo city council voted to destroy the press for libel. And so now you have this impropriety where Joseph and the, and the Mormon city council, the people who are in, who are being found guilty by this newspaper are the very people who are voting to destroy it. And this is what leads Joseph into char- you know, the charges that leads Joseph to Carthage. So polygamy indirectly is the cause for his martyrdom. But that doesn't really explain section 132. So what does explain section 132? Well, if we go back, I'm going to read a little bit. Uh, I'm going to pull out of a little bit, a few of the pages here um, in, in Kingdom of Nauvoo. You know, again, this is Ben Park. Ben, Benjamin Park is a brilliant Mormon, uh, Mormon historian. Um, he teaches out of, uh, I believe, Sam Houston University, just north of, of uh, Houston, Texas. And, and I've, I have absolutely loved his book. I've read it now three times. And each time I pull something brand new out of it, and uh, I'm like, how can I possibly miss these things again? But we're going to start the conversation here around 1841 when Joseph is creating the Relief Society. Because at the time, Joseph wants to kind of experiment with more a progressive way of having women um, involved in the religious community. And, and it is kind of a more progressive on the frontier way of, of being able to have women go out and form these institutions. It's, it's not the only group that's doing it. Joseph isn't inventing the concept. There are other women's organizations at the time. But within his this religious community, it's a little bit forward-thinking and progressive. And so he charges Emma, he calls Emma as the first Relief Society president. He charges Emma to basically go around and have the Relief Society be one of its primary functions is to make sure that the saints are living the commandments. And 
if you find anything of any impropriety going on, and you know the the DNC says earlier on that hey, if you find that someone has sinned, there's proof of them sinning, bring the evidence here. You know this is even in the third Nephi. You know in Jesus's uh, statements, bring it, bring the evidence, and if they ask for forgiveness, then you forgive them, and if they don't, then you blot their name out and you and you kick them out. And this is even how uh, Moroni, I think Moroni describes what's going on in in like Moroni six, if I remember right, and. And so this is kind of how they're they're functioning. And so then Emma takes the charge, and Emma is is a very pious woman. Um, some people have des- described her as Puritanesque in in her devotion. And so she goes through, and she really starts to kind of become the morality per- police, for lack of a better term, in Nauvoo, mm-hmm. and going around. And when, and this is happens to be at the exact same time that Joseph is now starting to hyperactively recruit and be sealed to women. And so this is, these two things are going on at the same time and they're going to converge and it's not going to be a good convergence. So Ben Park reads, and it's on page 104, the prophet frequently cautioned the Relief Society to be gentle when it came to identifying a member's sins. He mostly wanted the society to defend his character, but soon feared it might discover his own clandestine polygamist actions. However, Emma, and Emma often resorted sometimes with her husband present that no sinner should be spared. At this point, though still unaware of the scope of Smith's secret activities, she was starting to hear more rumors. The contrast between the two Smith leaders only became more precarious in the coming months. All right, so at, at this particular hand, we end up seeing that there is a Joseph and Emma. So all the church videos that we see of like Joseph and Emma getting together, having this really passionate, devoted, singular love for each other, um, it, it's kind of not accurately portrayed, especially coming into 1844. Um it says, Joseph Smith must uh, must have known that empowering Nauvoo's women was a double-edged endeavor. On one hand, his, his vision for social reformation required the participation of all who lived within the city, but on the other hand, enabling them to organize and mobilize put himself and his still-developing practice of polygamy in danger. So this kind of comes to a head in 1842, and this is when Joseph ends up marrying the first polygamist wife, who there is evidence of having sexual relations with. And this is Louisa Beeman. And so in Louisa Beeman, actually, she, he had taken Louisa Beeman for wife in 1841. So in the spring of 1842, Joseph ends up taking on six more wives. And of those six, six wives, um, a handful of them, um, I'm counting one, two, three, four, five of them were already married. And so this was not, there weren't any evidence of sexual relations with these women. It looks like these were evidences of kind of the celestial matrimony and the celestial marriage to be sealed for, for eternity. Uh, we call sealings only. Yeah. Yeah. Sealing only as it were. Um, but then he brings on another polygamous uh, wife, Agnes Coolberth, who was a widow. So Beeman, however, of those, of those seven was the only one who um, had never been married before. And the only one who has, there is some, some evidence that uh, there was a sexual union there. But Park says on 105, regardless, the nature and the purpose of Smith's plural unions shifted in 1842. All four women sealed to the prophet in the first few months of that year, and nearly all sealed to him in the year after, were young and single and fit the profile of child-rearing wives. Whereas Smith's earliest polygamous unions seemed focused on building familial ties and hereditary linkages, these new unions implied something else. A part of his Abrahamic project— Smith fashioned himself into an Abrahamic patriarch. 
All right. But not all the women that he came to were accepting of his proposal. And so the first woman that he came to that rejected him was Sarah Granger Kimball. And, and she said, no, I'm not going to be married to you. The second one, um, in fact, she, she said to go tell, to go teach it to someone else. It was really, it was really kind of funny. (laughs) Um, the second one is Nancy Rigdon who rejected Joseph, but this is a really interesting, um, case because Orson Hyde, who we all know, Orson Hyde is the gentleman who, uh, the, who's called on, to on a mission over to Jerusalem and who opened up the, the, the restoration of the gospel, right? We have, you know, the whole prayer in Jerusalem. While Orson dedicate Hyde is- Dedicate the land. Yeah, dedicate the land for the restoration of the gospel. While he's away on his mission um, out there to, uh, to Israel, his wife is home alone and and there's a whole story of how Joseph tries to take her under his wing and provide for her and and basically what ends up happening is he ends up being sealed to her while her husband is on a mission so now she's his spiritual wife like sealed for eternity while Orson Hyde is on a mission and while he's sealed to her while her husband's on a mission he then asks her to go help recruit Nancy Rigdon who's the daughter of Sidney Rigdon and so Sidney Rigdon's daughter comes in, Nancy Rigdon, Joseph proposes, Nancy Rigdon rejects it right away. And so then Joseph brings in a second time and then ends up writing a famous letter known as the happiness letter. And this happiness letter has a couple of famous quotes to it. Um, namely, there's a quote that says, that which is wrong under one circumstance may be and often is right under another. Also, the famous Joseph Smith quote that said, happiness is the ultimate end of our existence, the the ultimate purpose of our existence, is from that letter from Nancy Rigdon, basically telling her that if she doesn't marry him, then her eternal exaltation is in jeopardy. And she still rejects him. And so in this particular way, she ends up telling her father, Sidney Rigdon, who was unaware of the polygamy going on, and their relationship was already estranged. And so they stopped talking to each other for a time. Joseph ends up kind of getting Sidney back into his graces and ben ends up talking to him, but Nancy Rigdon never comes around. When Orson Hyde comes back from his mission, and, and I haven't ever been able to really ascertain how much of this Orson Hyde has actually been able to figure out, but he does end up writing um, in 1845 that his wife did introduce Nancy Rigdon to Joseph Smith for the purpose of Joseph Smith marrying Nancy. But that was because from Orson's point of view, because Nancy was basically a prostitute and Joseph was just trying to, to keep her reputation intact. Now there's no other really information that I know to be able to, to validate that, whether or not that was his whole reason. But when it actually comes into the, the reasoning that we have from the happiness letter and from everything there, her moral, Quite her moral, um, her lack of morality, as it were, was never in question. So, so it's just, it's an interesting thing that we just kind of this extreme, ex, this uh, outlying source from from Orson Hyde that way. But from that, we have Nancy Rigdon who rejects him. Um, one of the um, there ends up being a few different problems that end up happening um, as, as well because we have a few clandestine relationships that happen. Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball are brought in. They start practicing plural, um, polygamy as well. They start looking for wives to marry as well. Um, one of them that they try to to uh, to convert into marrying Brigham, her name was Martha B- um, Brotherton, and 
Park writes on page 208 that this Martha Brotherton, who had immigrated with her family from Manchester, England earlier that year, within weeks of her arrival in Nauvoo, she was invited to talk with Apostles Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball in Joseph Smith's Red, Red Brick store. According to an affidavit signed by her later published as part of a, a larger expose, she was cornered in the prophet's office for an extended period of time while the men tried to convince her to be Young's plural wife. She flatly refused. But then at that point, now it's starting to come out that these men are starting to look for second and third wives. Also, at the same time going on, the Nauvoo mayor is John C. Bennett, who is a womanizer. And he was an unknown womanizer who had kind of left his wife and kids, moved into Nauvoo. And now it's starting to come out that he's now saying that um, Joseph has allowed him to sleep with as many women as he can. And so it's coming out that he's now going around and trying to find as many women to sleep with him as possible. So now his indiscretions are coming along. And Joseph doesn't know how much John C. Bennett actually knows of what they're doing with polygamy. So Joseph can't publicly call him out for his indiscretions because he doesn't want the blowback from John C. Bennett because he doesn't know how much John C. Bennett knows of what he's doing. But Joseph finds it weird that John C. Bennett is using Joseph's name to go out and to find women to sleep with and to marry. If when he, he had never explicitly invited him into the practice. Exactly. When Joseph had never explicitly brought him in. So there's this, Joseph's in a catch-22. He doesn't know how much Bennett knows, but Ben is also using this, Joseph is accepting my polygamy. And so how, why would he use that argument unless he knew something, right? So this becomes, is becoming more complicated. And... So it says here, a delicate dance ensued. Bennett privately resigned as mayor on May 17th and even exclaimed in a swarm affidavit that Smith had no knowledge of his infidelities. Smith was then nominated as Bennett's replacement at a, at a momentous city council meeting two days later. Um, Emma, during this time, is starting to actually come into and recognize that there's more of these allegations that are coming out, and she starts to hear more and more and more. Okay, so fast forward a little bit of time. Um. Hiram is adamantly opposed to all of this, and Joseph hasn't really brought Hiram into any of it. Um, when Joseph approached Hiram, I think it was in 1838, 1839, um, basically this is when Joseph says, I've been approached three times with an angel with a fiery sword, um, basically saying that on the third time, if I don't start practicing polygamy, he's going to destroy me. And in telling the story to, to, uh, to Hiram, Hiram remarks something along the lines of, did you check to see if the angel had cloven hooves? Just to, to see, what, <laughs> was this a devil angel? <laughs> right? And so Hiram is completely unconvinced. And it's not until 1843 that Hiram actually um, is convinced by Brigham Young because Brigham Young says, hey, listen, your first wife, uh, Jerusha, who had died, you can be sealed to her and she can be your wife forever. And you could be married to your second living wife, Mary Fielding, and she can be your wife and you can be sold to her. And something about that spoke to Hiram. And so Hiram comes around where he starts to accept this. Now, during the same time, Joseph has taken all of these wives and he keeps adding more and more and more. And now it's starting to come out into the open that this is going on. Emma is actively with a campaign with the Relief Society trying to preach fidelity and piousness and virtue. And she sees and she keeps on hearing rumors of infidelity and adultery going on with her husband and a lot of the members of the Twelve. So it's about this time that Joseph then is saying, I need to start talking to I, I need to tell Emma what's going on. 
And so prior to this, he had kind of concluded that the only way to preserve their relationship was to keep the practice secret. So Ben Park writes that his private letters and diaries, even during the periods when he was actively courting new polygamous wives, continued to express a deep and sincere affection to his first wife, Emma. At least in Joseph's mind, there was no contradiction between his loyalty to Emma and all of his other marriages. There are no contemporaneous records that captured Emma's initial response to the revelations, and we do not know when exactly she heard about them. In fact, her understanding seemed to evolve over the course of from 1842 to 1843, which suggests that Joseph did not tell her everything at once. It appears that sometime in May 1843, she agreed to Joseph to be sealed to four women. So at this point, Emma's like, okay, I will let you be sealed for eternity to four women. Um, these were the Partridge sisters, whom, and they were the, uh, the Lawrence sisters. But in a rather sad twist, Joseph had already been sealed to the Partridge sisters two months pre- previous to this without Emma's knowledge. So that when Emma consented to Joseph being married to these two sisters, they carried on a sham wedding for the sake of basically appeasing Emma and, and, mm-hmm. and a facade for Emma. Um, so from that particular point of view, also the other two sisters that Joseph had married, there was uh, there was some talk about that because they were basically um, underage girls that were put into his care, and he was the steward over them, and so it looked like there was some impropriety there. But then in that particular case, Joseph and Emma were sealed for eternity in a ritual that was sacrali- that, uh, that sacralized their already existent marriage. Um, yet when where Hiram would be a stalwart defender of the practice, eventually Emma always remained contentious against it. She always remained opposed to it. On the same day that she witnessed her husband being sealed to the four women, she also discovered that her that these were not the only other plural unions that he had. Emily Dow Partridge later claimed that Emma expressed immediate regret after the ritual. From that very hour, Partridge wrote, Emma became our bitter enemy. She did not have to look very far for incriminating evidence. The same day of the Partridge sealing, Emma had discovered Joseph and Eliza R. Snow together behind a locked door. Enraged, she burst into the room to confront them. Emma now worried that these sealings were now more than spiritual in nature. In July, she angrily confronted Snow, her former confidant and close friend. Um, Eliza R. Snow later reflected in her diary and darkness now reigned over Emma's heart. Emma, of course, believed that she was merely seeking justice things would never improve. So it says, so this is where section 132 begins. In July of 1843, after several tumultuous weeks, Hiram finally thinks he has an idea, he has a solution to this whole problem with Emma. He, appro- he approaches Joseph and he's like, what we need is a revelation. And Joseph's like, that's not going to work. And Hiram's like, definitely, if you have a revelation, you take a revelation to Emma, telling Emma to basically get in line and this is what's going on, Emma will get in line. And Joseph's like, that's not going to work, but okay. So Joseph stands up, dictates a revelation. Um, I think it's Clayton, um, ends up writing it down. Hiram takes it across the street to Emma. who <laughs> He repeat, he, and, and this is section 132, when we'll get into it. And from 132, he, Hiram proceeds to tell Emma and to read to Emma, this new revelation. And Emma doesn't believe any of it. It says Smith's revelation failed to convince its primary audience. After three hours of a dictation, Hiram raced across the street to the prophet's home to meet with Emma. But instead of of finding a willing convert, he encountered only resistance. Hiram returned to Joseph and informed the prophet that he had never received a more severe scolding in his entire life. 
Emma, Hiram related, insisted that she would not believe a word of the new revelation, unsurprised given the events of the previous months. Joseph remarked, I told you, you do not know Emma as well as I do. So from this, basically what happened is copies have been made of the revelation. Emma to be, Emma basically said, listen, we can start to work on our marriage again, but you're going to have to destroy all of that. Um, so he says that she was allowed to express her frustration by destroying, actually destroying the, uh, the revelation in the document that had been written it down on the, but however, the relationship did not improve a month later, Emma threatened Joseph with a divorce in an attempt to, to mollify her concerns and assure her protection. Joseph signed over 60 lots in Nauvoo to his wife and their children, a substantial amount for any individual, as well as a riverboat that they had hoped would someday be a source of financial stability. Yet Emma did not back down at all until Joseph promised not to take any more plural wives wives that fall with only one exception he remained true to his word so later on she uh as polygamy became a thing more and more and more women became very distraught at this whole practice and they would start coming to emma for solace and emma basically said i i can't i can't figure it out myself i'm not going to be any help to you and so she started turning the women away. She's like, I, I've got nothing for you. And then as it finally turns out, as as a uh, the president of the Relief Society, um, Emma kind of went through a couple different waves. I think it was more about trauma than it was about her actually agreeing with polygamy. Because at, at certain times, it looks like she may actually be on board with it. But then she kind of does an about face. But in this particular case, um, as Relief Society president, I think it's in February or March of 1844, Emma then takes to the stand of uh, kind of like the, the public stand as a Relief Society president and publicly preaches that anything that Joseph says behind closed doors and in secret is not of God and is just Joseph talking. Only the prophet speaks. The only thing that carries the efficacy and the weight of God is that which is spoken in the open and which is delivered to the whole. And so we can only trust Joseph when it's in the open. And this is kind of the final, uh, the final straw. And up until this point, there was what was called the Quorum of the Anointed. And the Quorum of the Anointed was kind of a, a, a select group of, of people in Nauvoo that included uh, mostly men, but some women. Um, Emma was on that. And as the women had more and more adamantly opposed polygamy, um, this is when Joseph disbands the, the Relief Society and he removes all the women from the Quorum of the Anointed. They reevaluate the Quorum of the Anointed, and this is where we end up getting the Council of Fifty. And the Council of Fifty then becomes Joseph's uh, right hand and being able to go out and stump for president for him. So that's how that history ends, begins to unfold. So all of that to say that Section 132 is addressed to Emma with this whole backstory involved. There's a whole backstory of, of Joseph being sealed to other people, of being married to other people, of, of a few cases of, of sexual relations. Um, there are people who are reluctantly on board with it. There are people who are adamantly reject it. Um, Joseph is doing it with Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball. He's trying to maneuver politics with John C. Bennett. Then all of a sudden the rumors start around Nauvoo that there's a lot of adultery going on, that this is just a sexual escapade. And this is kind of where we're at. So when we start to read narratives of adultery, when we start to read, um, for instance, here in verse, uh, what I got it written down. Um, 
in verse 36, where basically we write that God commanded Abraham and Sarah to give Hagar to Abraham to wife. This starts to reflect that whole narrative of what is right in one situation is wrong in another, and what is wrong in one situation is right in another. So we can start to see that these same kind of basic arguments that Joseph, Joseph has been using through this whole time kind of begin to filter into 132 in this letter to Emma to try to convince her of polygamy, in the which it basically says, either the woman is going to be on board with polygamy and accept it, or God's going to destroy her, is, is basically the, the end result here. It's it's a lot of justification for why this is the case, but if the women don't accept it, then God will destroy them. Okay, I've talked a lot. Ben, do you have anything to say <laughs> about any of that? <laughs> so, I don't know. <laughs> um <clears throat> It's really it's really difficult to to step into a perspective on this. Um we're we're removed historically, we're removed doctrinally in some ways, um religiously in many ways from this even though it's part of our religious um heritage. Um so I don't think it's um, a stretch to say that the vast majority of the membership of the church now, um, if they even really understand what section 132 is talking about, they don't believe it. And it's sitting there in their scriptures. So that's kind of the position that section 132 is in. You know, it's a, it's a section that really has a difficult time in a lot of ways. Um, really gaining traction even in its own time, but especially today um, as authoritative from the membership of the church's point of view, I think. Um, so there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different ways that one could understand this. And I, I can't, put myself as an authority in any case i can only say what seems to be the case to me in this situation um what seems to be going on here from from the historical account what i take away from it is that you know whether or not joseph smith um really felt like every single one of these ceilings or, or marriages was um, commanded specifically by God. It does seem to be the general consensus of the historians that I've heard on this in and outside of the church that Joseph, uh, th this wasn't, th this whole project wasn't explicitly about sexual relations. That certainly could be a one way to describe it and was certainly an aspect of it. But the way that he went about it, uh, the way that it was done and developed, to Joseph Smith, at least, it seems obvious there was something more going on here. Um, he had some religious conviction about this. Again, how deep that was, where it initiated, where along the path that dropped off and something else took over, uh, possibly it's hard to really say. This is, uh, it's, it's difficult to navigate the, the history on this and 
try to pull out like a consistent narrative of to what really uh, everyone thought was going on and wanted to happen. But when we get down to the specific context of section 132, I, I see especially between this conversation between Joseph and Hiram, Hiram was the one of the hardest to win over. You know, I think the two people that Joseph Smith was most concerned about with this were Hiram and Emma. And when Hiram was sort of brought over to view it, to accept uh, Joseph's way, I think there was some relief on Joseph's part. Um, but he knew that it was going to be very difficult or impossible to persuade Emma. And so sitting there with Hiram and discussing it, um, I can definitely see how he had kind of despaired on the fact, but that Hiram prevailed on him to say, Hey, let's write a revelation and, um, let's present it to Emma. And I don't know that from my point of view, um, one um, has to be an actual revelation from God. I think historically, um, it's perfectly consistent for this to be something that Joseph Smith that did come from Joseph Smith. Um, and it was an effort to, persuade his wife and save the situation. I think Joseph Smith was very distraught about damaging his relationship with Emma. I think he um, went through a lot to try to, to save that. Um, but uh, obviously with something like this, that, that really puts it on the rocks. And so I think 132 was an attempt at, at trying to, to bring Emma around. But I also think that, you know, as as we hear from the historical account, that Joseph Smith wasn't he wasn't really convinced it was going to work, but uh, that Hiram really thought that it, it was a possibility, or at least at least their their last hope. In one thirty two, I really see a lot of Joseph Smith here, and I see a Joseph Smith that is kind of desperate. Um, he there's a lot of issues and, and problems going on, and things have have gotten out of control in some ways. What may have started um, with one intention has turned into something else and it's offended his wife and he he isn't quite sure how to put the genie back in the bottle, right? Um, <clears throat> so I see a, a lot here with with Joseph to, to criticize. There's certainly plenty of room to to point out all of the the wrongs that he did, the mistakes that he made um, in this whole process. I can see his sincerity in a lot of it. I can also see um, some manipulation from him in the way that this section 132 is laid out and presented to Emma, and that troubles me. Um. And there's, there's a couple little things though, like in section 132 that I see that are, that, that speak to me, um, just on the topic of how he describes the, the condition of, 
of becoming like God, how he posits it with this this concept of accepting plural marriage, I think is a is a very difficult link. Here in se- in verse nineteen, he says he talks about uh, the resurrection, and it says they shall inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, powers, dominions, all heights and depths. And just that phrase there, all heights and depths, has always been uh, appropriately profound to me with the idea that the the reality and life of of God, the existence that he experiences, isn't um, one of just sunshine and unicorns and rainbows all day long, right? Like um, there are heights and depths of the experience of God in the way that he interacts with his children, the sorrow that he feels, the joy that he feels. And uh, these are all a part of reality. They're part of existence. They're inextricable from existence. And I think putting that in here, saying, you know, positing that a person, even though they may ascend to become like God, they still will experience these heights and depths. It fits along with the theology that's been developed over the several years of, of how Joseph Smith views God as, as being an exalted man. Um, the, the vision of Enoch where he sees God crying and experiencing the sorrow and stuff like that. So that section, that part of section 132 has always spoken to me. I, I can pull that out as, as this little gem but I, I will say that there are some, I have some serious difficulties with uh, the rest of the section. And um, it's, I don't have any problem necessarily with saying that this is something that Joseph Smith felt he had to do uh, for Emma. Um, and how much the Lord is in this is, is difficult for me to see. I think that's a good way of putting it. Um you know, when we were talking about this beforehand, I think we talked more about this section um, beforehand than we have most other sections because of the del- delicate balance um, of it all. And, you know, I, I express that I, I think in my life, as I was saying before, I've, I've never been a proponent of polygamy. But as a young man, I remember talking with a general authority who had said, hey, we still believe in polygamy. We just believe in doing it one wife at a time. And I remember even as a youth, that landing sideways for me. And over time, you know, as I said, polygamy was never my soapbox. That was never the thing that affected me because I, I never felt like my, my eternity was ever dependent upon anything. But it wasn't until I was married, I started to understand the experience of how women lived it, that they were inherently reliant upon and connected. I'm connected directly to God. It's like I have a very individualistic relationship with God directly, but that the way that it was framed and the the way that I've seen so many women express their relationship is that they're not directly tuned to God necessarily, but they have to, they go through the husband and now it's a shared relationship. And, and so practically, and in, you, you can speak for yourself, Ben. I, for me, I have absolutely no problem with adults 
having the freedom to be able to associate and to form the relationships that they want to. I have no problem with polygamy as an institution. Where I do have issues is, is I think what you're right is that the way that this is framed, however, is that this is the only institution and unless you do it, you will be damned or destroyed. There's a big difference. <laughs> There's a big difference in those two things. Yeah. And then to see the fruit and, and we already have, there's so, been so much history already shown now, even by people who are apologists for the church. There's so much history to show just how psychologically damaging, how they rolled out polygamy and how this was for the saints, especially for women. And at some point I had to say, you know what, this, this doesn't affect me. This doesn't affect my psyche. But there are a lot of women in my life, friends and colleagues and and those are my, my most personal relationships, who have looked at this and have said, you don't understand what this still does to us. This narrative about how it frames our existence and who and what we are as daughters of God and of just how we see God because of this. And it's when I've started to listen to that, I, I, I know the I know the justifications, I know the apologetic side of it of how to respond to those, but I also know that there's no good apologetic response I've ever heard that is actually decent and is, isn't itself riddled with holes that doesn't eventually because I used to say, for instance, I have I trust in a loving God that whatever happens when I get there is is gonna be what we want or, or what, what is good for me. And so basically, I'm kind of like casting this conversation into the eternities and like kicking the can down the road of saying, I don't know what to do with it, but I'm going to kick it down the road and let God deal with it. And then we'll all be happy. And what that translates into, like when I said that to my wife, thinking, hey, let's just trust God that we're going to be happy because of how she was taught growing up and what it means to be a woman in in that context. What that means is we're all just going to be polygamists and she's going to have to be happy with it. And, and so, you know, there's uh, several books I've read. One of them, one of them uh, that I absolutely adore is called uh, the ghost of eternal polygamy by Carolyn Pearson. And she talks about the, the long-term effects of how polygamy is still affecting people today. And, and we don't have enough time on, on this episode to be able to go into even to scratch the surface. But it does. It it still directly impacts. There was a story she told about, and and it it seems ridiculous. It seems this seems absolutely ridiculous. And there are so many ways to just be able to flippantly dismiss these kinds of stories. But you know, the story she tells is that there is a woman who um, tells her daughter that she's not going to go to the celestial kingdom. That she commits just enough sins to be able to make sure that she never gets in. She, she actually, I think she stole from a store. So she like semi-regularly like takes a candy bar and steals a candy bar from the store just so she feels like she's committed enough sin that she's not going to qualify for the celestial kingdom because she just is like, I'm not going to live polygamy. There, there, I just, I can't do that. And the Mormon response to that is, well, you obviously don't have enough faith and you obviously don't have enough trust in God and you obviously don't have enough love for you to be able to do that because God's going to love you, you know, to trust in God's love for that. But the thing is, is there's never been given any good context of how that exists in the, in the afterlife. It's always this really big nebulous, uh, phantom of abstractions 
that we just kind of cast on, well, just trust and be happy in this case. But the thing is, is it's, it's actually destroying our now. So there really isn't any really good fruit as far as how the system and the institution has framed this discussion that actually produces good fruit here. But we still do practice polygamy. In fact, President Nelson has lauded even in the last year how grateful he is for his first wife and that he's still to his second wife, that he has his wives, as he says, for eternity. It's the same thing with President Oaks. We still believe in and we still practice polygamy. We still just do it one wife at a time. And issues like this around, you know, I was talking to you, Ben, about another issue that uh, in, in our culture, this affects us just one story of many. I grew up, there was a, a someone I grew up with when I, uh, I lived back east and, and I grew up in Memphis. He was married um, and he ended up dying in a car accident after he'd been sold in the temple. And um, that situation, when it happens before, the wife, uh, I think he's only been married a couple months, and no one wants to marry the new bride who's only been married for two weeks to two months because she's already sealed the first husband. And church doctrine states that that any man who then marries her, his kids will never be his own. They will always go to that first husband. And so culturally, women who've been sealed and have lost their husbands early on, they they find it very difficult to get remarried. And then when they do get remarried, unless they can get a temple annulment and get resealed to their second husband, then they have to deal with uh, the emotions of letting go of their first husband and getting sealed to the second husband so that the children they actually have with the second husband are sealed to their actual father. Because if you can imagine children who are in primary hearing about eternal parents and eternal families and realizing that their biological father and their biological mother, that's not going to be their eternal dad. And this is just one of like dozens of different various kinds of stories about how this policy plays out that still affects us today. And it comes back here to, to 132. And I I know the apologetics on 132. I know the doctrines. I know the justifications. I know the history behind it. But just like you, Ben, something here tells me that, that this was, it's highly problematic. And so for anyone listening, if there, if you've ever needed to have a voice tell you that polygamy and plural marriage is not a necessity for your eternal salvation, that this isn't an absolute necessity, I know the quotes, I know the history, I know the prophets who have said so, I also know the ones who have talked about it and says have said no. But... The ones who have said no are fewer and far between, and it's usually buried. Because that very much is the doctrine um, espoused by, by many of the leaders and is still practiced today, right? You know, we still talk about that practice today. But in this, it's highly problematic for me the way this was administered, the way this was rolled out, and not just with Joseph Smith with all of the lying and the the going around and this has says nothing about what happened with Fanny Alger back in, in the 1830s, which is dealing with the Nauvoo issues. Um, especially with what happened when Brigham Young took it all out. Polygamy is a very, 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 very problematic aspect of our history. And it's one that the church doesn't want to talk about. And, and it's one that the members are very ill-equipped to deal with. So, in saying that, um, knowing, you know, we, we've addressed that 132 was coming out to Emma. We've addressed kind of the context of how 
kind of the politics and the social, the society of, of how, what is happening from, from, uh, 1841 until 1843 when this was given, Ben, I think you did a really great job in being able to kind of express a positive side of Joseph in, because that that's really what I loved about Carolyn Pearson's book, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, is she basically had said, I've basically mourned for my old concept of Joseph Smith. I've gone through my anger phase, and now I can just accept him for who he is and love him for what he was. But it's kind of like the the whole Camelot idea of this, of a knight in shining armor is kind of gone, and you just accept him for what he is. And... Joseph, even you know the famous book Rough Stone Rolling with Richard Bushman, even he's like Joseph stated, "No man knows my history, and no one really understands me." And it's still true; we we have a hard time constructing who and what Joseph was. Um, but what we do see is that the fruit that came from all of this was not very good. And I think we just need to acknowledge that and to accept that and to realize that there are still active issues going on today and just to be able to vocalize that because I have no solutions. I have no solutions to offer to be able to change it. I'm not in a position of authority or power to be able to change doctrine or be able to set qualifiers for what this is going to be for the institution of the church. What I can do, though, as, as, as an observer, is to look at the fruit of what this has produced and to say confidently, this hasn't produced good fruit. And there are still so many people suffering because of it. And those voices that will try to relegate, dismiss, or try to simply cast shade of unfaithfulness and of ignorance and how stupid people are because they they have an issue and that this, this lands sideways for them. Those are not the voices of the Spirit of God either. Because they are very much, I, I've yet to find those kinds of voices against those who have deep-seated issues with polygamy and the trauma that it causes, and the finger pointing against those people that are not akin to those in the in the spacious building. We need to be able to sit with everyone who's having an issue with this and just be able to mourn with those that mourn. And that's really what I've been trying to, I guess, been trying to to, to bring about here. Is just the acknowledgement that this is a difficult subject, that there aren't any really good answers or solutions, and for people to realize that there are others who also deal with this these issues and have these feelings. Me coming from an era where I haven't had a problem with this, and then coming into awareness, and it was, for me it was like hitting a brick wall. It was like one, it's like I didn't see it, I didn't see it, I didn't see it, I fought against it, I didn't see it, and then one day I saw, I, I just I saw it. And it was, that was a very painful day because then it's like, then you see the pain and then you got to figure out, well, what do I do with this now? So as I said at the beginning, I've been looking forward to this day, but I, I really haven't, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I don't really have anything to say about the actual getting into the actual nuts and bolts of 132. I, I mostly wanted to talk about 132 than I actually wanted to talk kind of within it. Well, the, there are several things in 132 that once you understand the historical context, you you see what they're talking about, and so it, it make you know some of it makes more sense. There's parts that don't make sense unless you understand 
the historical context, like where it addresses Emma and talks about what um, was given to her and, and, you know, and everything. You don't, you don't know what it was that was given to her. Well, it, the, the lands were deeded to her and the riverboat and so forth. If she decided that she didn't want to be, you know, in relation, if she wanted to divorce Joseph Smith, she could go. And so that was offered to her if that's the way that she wanted to go. Um, and again, if you don't have that historical context, it, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Then it really contextualizes and um, helps us understand Emma and her situation better after Joseph died, why she would stay in Nauvoo, why she wouldn't go with Brigham West, right? Well, it makes a whole lot more sense to understand Emma and her feelings and situation and how she wanted to go about her life once you understand everything that was going on with with the polygamy and, and Joseph. Yeah, and, and to add to Emma's maybe justification for why she didn't really care for Brigham is a lot of those properties that Joseph had promised to deed to Emma, he never actually got around to doing it. So by the time he died, when she went to try to validate those claims and to get those claims and to have that, that land as, assigned over to her, Brigham Young basically refused and sold it all to be able to finance so part of the church. Yeah. yeah. So they were part of the church and used it to finance the trip. So she lost out on, on most of that anyway. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of interesting history that's here. Do you have any, any last thoughts, Ben, before we, uh, we close out today? Um, stick with us. This was a hard <laughs> section. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's, it's really heavy. I, I've been, I've been thinking just how heavy this was going to be and, and it, and it, and it is heavy and it's going to be heavy on me this week as I, I, as we come into the next sections and and do that. But Hey, if any of you have any thoughts, if, if any of this has, has helped, um, if you have any questions, if, if nothing has helped and you still have questions, you just want someone to sit with you, um, message us, talk with us. Um, we have, we have a lot of ability of just, just sitting down and talking, <laughs> talking and just mourning. So if there's any of that going on, um, as we're, as you're reading through it this, uh, this time around, or if there's just any other thoughts, let us know. But, uh, we look forward to that. Thank you again to, uh, this has been a longer episode. So I know that, uh, that Kyle and Catherine are going to, to have a little bit of a, more of a go <laughs> with this episode. <laughs> thank you for sticking with us. And uh, thank you for being there. We couldn't do this without you. And, uh, and we'll go from there until next week. I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. We'll see you next week. 